ahead and get started this morning and I, I just want to welcome back Dr. Keith Lloyd. Dr. Lloyd has been here before and I always so much look forward to him because um, his unique background and, and the way he's blended uh, his academic knowledge with the, the study of the Bible and, and uh, I'm always grateful but I'm especially grateful today just to take a minute and the fact that he has also recognized uh, our brother in Christ who uh, passed, Jim Kettlewell. I was at a wake uh, this past weekend, and a comment was made that uh, the deceased would certainly uh, want to be remembered, but not remembered in remorse that he was gone, but remembered in, in a cheerful spirit that he was here. And I know Jim would want the same, and I appreciate the fact that Dr. Lloyd has dedicated this next four weeks, uh, in part at least, to uh, Jim's memory. I think we all do. With that, let's open in prayer. Father God, Abba, we come before you aware that your presence was represented in the life of Jesus. And as we study the life and time, the historicity of Jesus, we ask that you not just fill us with knowledge from human understanding, but did you give us wisdom through your Holy Spirit to put into effect that that we know our knowledge may become wisdom and that we might be in the world as you are in us, with us, and through us. And we ask today in special memory of Jim Kettlewell and his friend, Dr. Lloyd, your blessing on his teaching. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, can everybody hear? Okay. How are you doing today? <laughs> I've been a little under the weather. <clears throat> but fortunately, every day is a little bit better. Um, yeah, I do want to dedicate this to Jim. He, he was an inspiration to me. But I do have to tell a funny story. He used to spend a lot of time on his phone. And uh, I thought maybe he was just a victim of text messaging like a lot of us, or maybe even doing research or whatever. I don't know. But every time I'd see him in the hallways at school, he'd be on his phone. Now, he, he didn't use it in the classroom like some students do, but he'd always be on his phone. And then one day I come up, and he's doing like, he, he's playing like Candy Crash or something. <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy that doesn't take life too seriously. <laughs> but a lifelong learner, and uh, he was such a pleasure to have in my classes because he brought a whole different dimension of experience to the classroom. Not that all the students were 18 or anything, but uh, they were much younger than him, and uh, he always brought a lot of wisdom and insight. So, yes, we miss our brother. But as you say, better to remember the happiness. The Candy Crush moments. All right. So why am I doing a historical approach to scripture? Part of it is because I... Do you have this thing where you go to a bookstore and it seems like a book is talking to you? It sounds weird unless it's happened to you. You just... You feel like it's on the shelf and it, it, it needs to be pulled off. And then once you pull it off, it doesn't want to go back. It's almost like it starts sliding back out. 
And I found this book called, um, called Zealot about Jesus. And I thought, okay, some other goof has written a book. But it just, it spoke to me. And, and uh, it actually is by a guy who uh, was a nominal Muslim. He became a Christian. And then he became kind of disaffected with some of um, the questions about Jesus and his historicity. So he, he wrote this book on the history of Jesus. And it's one of the books, best books I've ever read on the history of Jesus. Now, there's some things that he concludes that I don't agree with, and you probably wouldn't either. But the writing is so good, and the picture of history is so vivid that even though I was a history major and even though I've studied this period, there were new things. So hopefully I'm bringing some new things to your understanding as well. Because one of the things he said to me that was very powerful was that he, doesn't, he no longer is a Christian in the sense of believing that, that Jesus is the Christ, but he says that he has more respect for Jesus now than he did before. And I thought, that's a very interesting thing for him to say. But as I read his book, I thought, darn, it's happening to me too. It's, it, it, it's this, in that second sense that learning about the history and why Jesus might have said what he said and, and the things he experienced brings the whole thing to life. And it makes him, as, the, as they concluded in the councils, fully God and fully man, right? Fully God, fully human. And sometimes we forget about the fully human part. And I really want to focus on the fully human part. So, as you know from the past, I don't have any problem studying people who say things against what I believe because I had a good professor, Dr. William Lane, who told me that you don't do that. He gave me the same advice that Paul gave Timothy, study to show yourself approved. And he never thought it was a good idea to just tit for tat. Now, I wish our political realm was like that. He thought it was always stupid to do that. Right? If someone criticizes this, you don't just educate yourself and fight that. He goes, no, you educate yourself to find the truth, because there's probably some degree of truth in what that person is saying. Otherwise, who would listen to them? So he was always looking for the truth no matter where it was. In fact, when I was studying with him, when he was assigning uh, different books for us all to read, he had me read a book by A.D. Nock, who was an atheist. He said he wrote the best history of Christianity I've ever read. And I thought, now that's setting the example, isn't it? Okay, so that's the context. So the reason I want to do this, though, is because a deep study of historical context to mentally create the world of a text through focusing on, I have no idea why I cut off the second part of that line. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so what we're trying to do is get a vivid picture of the world that's not movie done and through Mel Gibson's eyes. Outside, through outside verification, so the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, Roman records, etc. Uh, also, historians look at the number of sources, so they consider that anything that appears in all four Gospels is probably more, quote, historical. Lack of fit with tradition. If uh, anything Jesus says is surprising and doesn't fit with other things they say, that's probably histo more historical. Now, I, I know that's making a distinction that probably none of us really want to make, whether it's something historical or not, but this is the way historians view it. And they trust more earlier documents than late documents. So they would trust Mark a whole lot more than John. John's written perhaps in the early hundreds, where Mark 
there's some debate but anywhere from the 60s to the 70s in the AD, so it's much closer in time. So the idea is the closer in time, the more historical. I'm going to take the same approach because I think it's interesting and we find interesting things. Now, there have been mistakes in the past in this search for the historical Jesus. If you've ever done a search of your own on historical Jesus, there have been books written. There was a huge controversy at one point called, uh, there it is, The Jesus Myth. And then, of course, there's always the book that refutes it, Unmasking the Jesus Myth, which, of course, my professor told me, that doesn't really work. Tit for tat doesn't work. Truth across. Okay, so, one of the mistakes of the past is believing we can ever define the historical Jesus. So I'm going to talk for four weeks about the historical Jesus and conclude, I'm going to tell you right now, that it's still a mystery. Because I really believe in the mystery of the person of Jesus. And I think in a way it's an intentional mystery. It's a way that he used rhetoric, the way he used, the, the way that he spoke. He intentionally kept himself a mystery. Okay, I think it's also a mistake to discount the miraculous. Some historians say, well, if it's miraculous, it didn't happen. And one of the things that the writer of the book that I'm talking about said was, nobody, nobody in Jesus' time ever accused, ever said that he didn't do the miracles. Nobody. They just wanted to know how he did the miracles. Nobody disbelieved them. So he's saying, as a historian, I'm not going to either. I'm not going to say they can verify them historically, but I'm not going to dismiss them because they're a part of the history. And he also avoids this, and I think it's very wise, to explain the miraculous in terms of science. Have you all heard these kind of things? Well, the, Jesus didn't really feed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves. He just inspired the other people to give their food to each other. Right? And you explain it away. Oh, this person just an epileptic. Yes, you've heard these things? <laughs> Okay, I think that's unwise. And so does the writer of this book. Because imp we're imposing modern notions of history on ancient writings, and the other mistake is using archaeological evidence as proof beyond <coughs> what it merits, although I'll probably do that a little bit. Also is the problem historically is anachronism. We interpret early work by later understandings. One of the problems of finding the historical Jesus is, of course, 2,000 years of history. How do you get back to this moment in time? And of course, these portraits there, they look so natural, don't they? The little picture of Jesus, they're all in medieval clothing. Nobody looked like that in Jesus' time. It was anachronistic. It'd be like all of them wearing suits and stuff. It, but we don't even see that because it's, you know, religious. Okay, interpreting ancient texts with modern understandings and anachronism, and finding evidence for later interpretations in earlier work. Which is one of the problems with the guy we're calling the book Zealot, because the Zealot party didn't exist until after Jesus' death. So, but he explains it pretty well, actually. We also have a stakeholder bias. Meaning, of course, if you're a committed Christian, you're going to freak out more if people say things. But historians... So, stakeholders always need to harmonize the accounts, and you end up with websites like this, Quick Answers to the Charge of Bible Contradictions. Yep. Oh, boy. When I teach the Bible, uh, 
as literature, I'm like, just, I don't want to go down any of these roads. Let's just look at it. Don't go down that road. Because then you end up arguing your whole life about whether something's a contradiction or really kind of missing the point, isn't it? Stakeholders tend to emphasize traditional interpretations, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or, or whatever your tradition is, and stakeholders prefer interpretation to fit their sectarian beliefs. So what are the advantages? Historical approach doesn't need to explain away problems in light of various traditions, right? Historians can really kind of tick off Jewish people and Catholic people and everybody because they're not really trying to please any of those groups. Not their task, but they're a little more free to do that. Historical approach can create a story that fits because that's what history is. What's the second part of history? Story. Yeah, it's a st historians will try to tell you it's not just facts. Historians do what? They create stories. So what is historically known without dismissing the entirely supernatural or pan-historical elements? So historians can do that. They can say, okay, the miracles may not be scientifically verifiable, but let's not chuck them out altogether. They're a part of the life of Jesus. Historical account relies on facts, but recognizes that facts range from established, recognized, plausible, probable, possible, doubtful, or impossible. I don't need to say that in this argument now about post-fact reality. Historical approach retains a sense of mystery. That's what I like about this writer. Aslan is his last name, believe it or not, the name of the lion in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. <laughs> First of all, I'm like, what? That's really his name. <laughs> Retains a sense of mystery. Even though this guy says, you know, that he sticks entirely to the historical person of Jesus and doesn't really believe Jesus was the, you know, the son of God, he still has this respect and a sense of awe and a sense of mystery. Historians can still do that. And, of course, historians reach a wider audience. Okay, so, where do I want to go from there? I got a lot to do here, but hopefully. Okay, I put a bunch of tiny words up there, so you're going to have to kind of, like, trust me. But, anyway, I usually send this out, and you can get it later. Um, first of all, Jesus clearly is called Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels. What's interesting is he's called Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels, but in none of the epistles. So something serious changed by the time the epistles are written. And Paul was even writing during about the time that Mark was being put together. So Mark uh, uses it five times. Jesus came from Galilee. Galilee and also uh, demons called Jesus Jesus of Nazareth. And blind Bartimaeus, who asked for his help, called him Jesus of Nazareth. I've got to say that too many times today to not be able to say it. When he's on trial, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. And even in the resurrection, the young man seated in Jesus' tomb says, you seek whom? Not just Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. So Mark is the earliest account, but Luke also mentions that it's Jesus' home twice. Um, and he mentions it in the trial. Wait, I need to put this on the full screen here. Luke mentions it four times, that it's Jesus' home. He has the same two stories, blind Bartimaeus and the, and the man delivered of demons. And then also in the road to Emmaus. 
he says, you know, you see Jesus, he t- when Jesus meets them on the road, he says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. John, four or five times, depends on how you look, because two of them are in the same context. Um, but it's specific, Jesus, the son of Joseph, and then the famous line, can anything good come out of? We'll understand why people would say that in a minute. Nazareth, population 498. It was a very, very small town in Nowheresville. We'll see in a minute. And then uh, when they come to get Jesus, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he. And they fell back and he said, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. I am he. I don't have any trouble saying that word, but I have had a cold and somehow my tongue's not working right. Okay, but we, here's the interesting part. The Gospels, but also Acts. Acts actually refers to Jesus of Nazareth more than the others. Seven times. Peter identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God, as the one who sent the Holy Spirit. Peter heals a man in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter tells a crowd how healing was performed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Stephen, in his speech, says that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. And and historians agree. This is one thing that they verify that the historical Jesus said because it's in all four Gospels. He said, I will destroy this temple. That got him in a lot of trouble. Peter speaks to a group of Gentiles. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Paul's vision, Jesus says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul says he was a persecutor of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, I hope I don't have to say that too many more times. The Gospels in the book of Acts make it clear that Jesus was referred to as, you say it this time. Thank you for helping me. I had a friend of mine in college who was a speech pathologist, and she couldn't say that, and it was so funny. She spoke normally in every other case, but when she would tell people she was a speech, she'd be like, I'm a fit. I'm a fit. I, I help people talk. <laughs> yes? That's why it was Jesus of Nazareth. When it's a really small town, you don't even have to go, Jesus of Nazareth, the bigger or the smaller, you know, because it's probably just one. Or at least the only famous one. All right, but interestingly enough, the references stop after the book of Acts. The epistles do not use that name. He's known as Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. During his lifetime, Jesus avoided being called the Christ or the Messiah, and that's what I want to look at. This is, historians get excited about that kind of thing. First of all, that it stopped being mentioned, and second of all, he, he resisted it. He resisted being called that. So that's an intriguing historical question. So here we go. This is an overview. This week, I'm asking, what does it mean that the early church referred to Jesus as? Why did he forbid others to call him Messiah or King? What did it mean in his time to call oneself Messiah or King? And in the coming weeks, we'll look at these things. Why did he refer to himself as the Son of Man rather than Messiah or King? And it's the Son of Man. It's very specific in Greek. The Son of Man. Not Son of Man. What was the role and the function of his miracles? 
How were his words and actions related to the powers of his day? And how is that related to the early church leadership focused on James, his brother? Another intriguing, intriguing little development that the early church was led not by Peter, but by James, the brother of Jesus. So there's a sense to where um, a tradition that's very embedded in the culture is if you're uh, a claimant to be Messiah and you're killed, then your family can step in. Your sons or your brothers can step in as leaders of the movement. All right. Then the whole series, I'm asking these two kind of broader questions. What can we learn about the historical Jesus from the period history and about his use of rhetoric? Because, of course, I'm a rhetorician. Uh, and rhetoric is not a bad thing, even though I just heard somebody say that, well, that's all rhetoric. I hate it when people say that. I'm like, everything's rhetoric, you dumb uh, person. <laughs> Probably don't say dumb person when I'm alone, alone on the couch. But I want to say, everything's rhetoric. You just use rhetoric. When you speak truth, you use rhetoric. You frame it in words, and that's rhetoric. You make choices how you say it. Yes, some people are good at it. Some people are not. But we are all doing it. And so I want to look at Jesus as a rhetorician. And, and really a lot of Christians have been neglectful or, of that or, or maybe afraid to do that. They look at Paul, but they don't want to look at Jesus as a rhetorician because that makes him too human. And I'm like, but that's the point. Fully God, fully man. I really believe that he was perfectly capable of understanding rhetoric, don't you think? I mean, he was a human being. He was raised. He lived. Um, a lot of people think maybe he was particularly advantaged because he was the son of God. Well, that's a mystery. But I don't, if he's fully man, then I kind of doubt that, that he had too many advantages. Do you know what I mean? Or doing miracles, of course. But, you know, like shortcuts, <laughs> smartest kid in the class kind of stuff. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I had to, he had to learn. He was a human being, right? So, um, I think he's very, very purposeful, and it's very interesting to me to see how purposeful he is in his language. When people ask him questions, he's an excellent rhetorician. They tr he traps them. He says things they don't expect him to say. That's good stuff, because if you're trying not to get killed, be vague. <laughs> True? <laughs> Don't let them know what you're doing. And that's exactly what he did. In rhetoric, that's called being aloof, right? You present yourself in a way that's kind of an enigma. But that makes you more interesting. All right, so all four Gospels agree that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth had a population of less than 500. It did not have a synagogue. And it offered little, little opportunity for a carpenter. They've dug it all up. It's, it, it wasn't there. It's more likely, likely that Jesus worked in nearby Sepphoris. I never learned this. Did you all know this? It's very common. Once you know it, you can go look it up. Anything? I've never heard of Sepphoris. Right down the street. Only recently. Well, it's partially. Yeah. Um, rebuilt by Herod. Herod, yeah, they actually knocked it down and rebuilt it. 
between the two of them. Well, we're just using logic here, but historians do that sort of thing. And to have a carpentry, you know, to work in carpentry in that small town is, is not likely. So it is likely that they would walk places, and Sifras is an easy walk. Um, but the th important thing about that is it's basically a Greek and Roman city, and we'll get into that in a minute. Judea had been divided by Roman rulers into three kingdoms, or tetrarchies, to keep control. Actually, Herod the Great had ruled it all, but Herod the Great died, and they didn't want one ruler anymore. The time before and after Jesus was a period of revolt, rebellion, claims to kingship, and claims to Messiah, to be Messiah. Most revolts came from, guess where? Galilee. All right, so stop thinking Galilee. I don't know how to make an analogy here, but think maybe Appalachia, right? I grew up in Kentucky, and there's a particular town called Hazard. And I think Hazard is actually the focus of that show, Justified. I think that happens in Hazard. But my, my football coach slash psychology teacher, which is just weird, <laughs> would talk about Hazard. Like, we have our own ways. <laughs> Government people come in here, and we just knock them off a cliff. <laughs> they just don't come back. I'm like, yikes. Okay, but I'm not pushing it too far. Galilee was kind of like that. They were very independent. They didn't like Jerusalem. They thought that the, the idea of the book of Judges was the way you're supposed to go, right? We're all ruled by God. We don't need a temple. We don't need a king. And we, interesting enough, though, most of the claimants to be the king came from where? Galilee. Because they were always promising, we're going to bring it back. That sounds familiar. Make Israel great again. No, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so small family farms, they were for centuries served as the basis of a rural economy were gradually swallowed up by large estates administered by landed aristocracies flushed with freshly minted Roman coins. Except for the Roman part, sounds familiar. The agriculture that had once sustained the meager village populations was now almost wholly focused on feeding the engorged urban centers, leaving the rural peasants hungry and destitute. The peasantry were now forced to pay a heavy tribute to Rome, which comes up in Jesus' ministry. Do we pay to Caesar or not? For farmers, the total would amount would be half of their annual yield. Okay, so to back up, this area was first conquered by a group of people called the Hasmoneans, particularly Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer. And you've heard of Hanukkah. Uh, they were subjugated under the Greeks after Alexander. They led a rebellion. Uh, when the temple was desecrated, they put Greek statues in the temple. And they led a rebellion and won, amazingly enough. So the country was under the rule of these people called the Hasmoneans, the family. And it was about, the, the, they ruled the land about the size of Solomon's realm, and Jewish life flourished, until Herod the Great comes along. Herod the Great was actually uh, of Arab descent, and he, uh, his father had converted to Judaism. This is one of the problems with Herod, isn't it? He's going to be called king of the Jews, but he's not genetically a Jew. <coughs> That's a big problem right there. Okay, so one of the things he did to get the attention of Rome, and Rome actually took over, and they, they were trying to battle the Hasmoneans for control. 
is, you know, of course he does what needs to be done. He steps in and he overthrows the Hasmoneans. But he did some other things that were, that were pretty good. He did a lot of rebuilding, a lot of what we would call infrastructure work, and he built the second temple. I mean, he helped to uh, remodel, refurbish the second temple, and the wall that you see of the temple today is Herod's wall. Okay. I'm not so sure it was great, but anyway. <coughs> he made a name for himself by clearing Galilee of bandits. We'll get into what those are. Less day. Bandits, yeah, the other side would call them freedom fighters or patriots, but Rome would call them what? Bandits. Bandits. In 37, Herod wiped out the remnant of the Hasmonean dynasty, so he killed all the Hasmoneans. Sweet guy. <laughs> he was given the title from Rome, King of Judea, King of the Jews. Ah, just that fact right there is very telling when his son asked Jesus, are you what? Yeah, if Jesus said yes, you're like, you're a dead man. Nobody's king of the Jews, except my dad. And he's dead. <laughs> Roman, Rome decided they weren't gonna call anybody king of the Jews anymore. That was, a, that was an iffy title. Um, he massacred nearly every member of the Sanhedrin, fun facts, and replaced the temple priests with a claque of fawning admirers. Okay, now you have to remember what happens next. Herod the Great's death in 4 BC, and this is the Herod of the story of when Jesus is born, right? And the Herod that kills the firstborn. That's Herod the Great. The one that he appears before is his son on trial, when he appears on trial, Herod Antipas. Okay, so they gave it to three of his sons. I'm gonna move through this quickly because we don't need all the details. Herod Archelaus ruled Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Philip the Tetrarch ruled Etruria, Trachonitis, and possibly Galinus and Panaeus. And then here is Herod, the Herod that Jesus would have grown up being ruled by, Herod Antipas. He ruled Galilee and Perea. Jesus would have been under his rule for his entire life, and he's the one that he appears before in trial. All right, so back to Galilee. Galilee of Jesus' time had undergone a profound psychic trauma, having felt the full force of Rome's retribution. Why did it, it went away? For revolts that erupted throughout the land and the death of Herod the Great. Roman policy burned the villages, raised the cities, enslaved the population, crucify the rebels. The center of the rebellion, Galilee, paid most dearly. Emmaus and Sampo were laid to waste, and guess what? Sepphoris. Huh. See, historians get excited about that kind of thing. This is only a few miles from Jesus. Yeah, we can either think that Jesus has just grown up in Nazareth in this idyllic life of never knowing anything, or we can think, huh, it's more likely that he traveled, and that at least people talked, and at least there was gossip, and people knew about this thing. It's a day's walk. You can see there's Nazareth. It's closer than that looks. You know how maps are. And there we go. In terms of context, Galilee is, is up here. A little bit of the West Bank and then up here in, in uh, what's northern Israel today. The sticks. The Hebrew Galil means district and usually circle. So it's just a circle of land. Okay, a little more background on Galilee. I'm going to quickly go through this because... 
just want to hit the highlights. Uh, it was actually Naphtali. Remember when the land was divided up into the 12 tribes? It was Naphtali and Dan, but Dan ended up being the police of Israel, so they didn't live in any particular place. So it, it was generally called Naphtali. But historically, Galileans considered themselves a wholly different people from the rest of the Jews in Palestine, partially because of this. If you look up here, Solomon rewarded his Phoenician ally, King Hiram I of Sidon, with 20 cities in the land of Galilee. There you go. So already Galileans are a mix. And although a lot of these people became Jews, it's a, it's a mixed territory from the very beginning. The Jewish historian Josephus explicitly refers to the people of Galilee as a separate ethnoi or nation. The Mishnah claims that Galileans had different rules and customs when it came to marriage, and even weights and measures. They were pastoral people, and they were recognized by their rustic accent. Now, that's really hard for me to grasp my mind around. <laughs> the Peter and Jesus were identified by their accent. Wow. It would probably have sounded southern, even though it's a northern part of the country. It would have sounded ignorant. Galilee had a tradition of political autonomy, and basically they were left alone for the most part, if they could. Even the Romans wanted to just generally leave them alone, if they could. They believed in a loose tribal confederacy ruled directly by God. Okay, so if you think about it, it makes sense. This makes a whole lot of things that Jesus says, and a lot of the ways he looks at the world fit together. He's a Galilean. I used to wonder this. If he was so concerned, how come he spent most of his ministry in Galilee? He didn't come down to Judea, but a couple of times, and once was at the end of his ministry. So, what's up with that? And he only went to Jerusalem, well, it depends on the account, but it seems to be only once. So, he's not showing a whole lot of respect for Jerusalem in that sense. You'd think, if you were thinking of modern political theory, right, go to Jerusalem. But he's in Galilee, Capernaum, you read that, that was his headquarters in Galilee, one of the bigger cities in Galilee. But he definitely didn't put his headquarters in Sepphoris or Tiberias, right? Those were the headquarters of Herod. Okay, yeah, there we go, I already said that. Hotbed of revolutionary activity for centuries, Rome considered the term Galilean with rebel. So if they said Jesus of Nazareth, what did a Roman hear? Jesus the rebel. Solomon couldn't tame them. They resisted heavy tax and forced labor. I'm kind of liking these people. They sound American, don't they? <laughs> don't tread on me. That's really kind of who they were. The Hasmoneans, priest kings who ruled from the land 140 B.C., never quite managed to submit them. So even the Hasmoneans couldn't rule them. And King Herod Antipas tried, but he couldn't get recognized by Rome until he rid them of rebels. Good luck with that. So what about these rebels? Successive droughts had left large swaths of the countryside fallow and in ruin. They, so most people went to work for the aristocracy. Jewish law forbade that leading, lending of fellow Jews for interest. Oh, there you go. Our whole country's based on charging people for interest. If loans weren't repaid, though, they figured a way around that. They confiscated your land. 
So many immigrated cities define work. This sounds so similar to the history of so many different places. But in Galilee, a handful of displaced farmers and landers exchanged their plows for swords and did what? They hid in caves and grottoes, attacked Jewish and Roman aristocracy, particularly Jewish, because they're traitors. The Romans are just doing what Romans do. But to them, their fellow Jews, the Jewish aristocracy, are traitors. This explains a lot that's going on in the scenes in the Bible where Jesus gets along pretty well with the Pharisees, which would make sense because they believed in the synagogues and they didn't believe in the primacy of the temple as much as the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin's a bunch of rich Herodians, right? They even call them Herodians. This is another thing. When you think about this, you think about the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Blessed are whom? The poor, right? The poor. He's focused on... It's, the book is very vivid about that even in the period that he kind of leaves <coughs> Galilee and goes south and then he comes back. Even in that period, things got so much worse. So he's coming back to an environment where people can't find work. People are poor. They're destitute. They're being overtaxed. They roamed the countryside, gathered followers. The Romans called them leste, bandits. One man's bandit. All right. Also, I didn't know this. Maybe you did. I don't know. There were many claimants to be king or messiah. Simon, uh, these are just close to Jesus' time. Simon, <coughs> Simon of Perea, 4 BC, led a, Hero, uh, uh, a fight against the who? The Herodians. Atrogis led an uprising against the Herodians and the Romans and declared himself king. Judas the Galilean led an uprising against the Romans. And guess where he led it? Sepphoris. Hmm. And this, this um, 6 AD, this would have been when Jesus was about 10. Jesus never claimed, specifically claimed to be the Messiah. Soon after him, 46 AD, Thutis. Notice that a lot of them had Greek names. <laughs> that tells you the influence of the culture. Lucas, Simon Bar-Kofa, the last, the last claimant. He's the one that led the final rebellion against Rome that got them all killed. All right, particularly I want to look at Judas of Galilee. He was a Jewish leader who led resistance to the census imposed. Remember the Quirinius census? That's the reason that the, the, at, at the beginning of uh, the Gospels, that's what's happening to make um, Joseph and Mary go home to Nazareth, or to Bethlehem. <laughs> He encouraged Jews not to register, and those who did have their houses burnt and cattle stolen. He began the fourth philosophy of the Jews, the Zealots. That's a philosophy at this point. It's not a rebellion uh, and not a particular movement. After Herod's death, a certain, this is from Josephus. After Herod's death in 4 BCE, a certain Judas son of a local bandit, Ezekias, attacked Sepphoris, then the administrative center of Galilee and, and sacking its treasury and weapons, armed his followers as a revolt against Herodian rule. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, Jesus would have been about 10 when this happened. All right, this is also noticed in Acts 5 when Gamaliel gets up to speak. You remember this scene? They're talking about Jesus of Nazareth in Acts. <coughs> and Gamaliel, they're about to, you know, start punishing Christians. 
And Gamaliel says this, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. Okay, so these rebels claimed to be agents of God's retribution. They wore the emblems of biblical kings, and they promised the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. A lot of things are making even more sense. What did Jesus say that he came to bring at the beginning of Mark? Kingdom of God. So he's using some of the same language, but it's very, very dangerous language to use. If you get up and say, I'm going to bring back the kingdom of God, you're pretty much standing up and saying, go ahead and kill me. Okay, I'm going to slide through this. It's just other things. That early Christians were actually called Nazarenes or Nazarites. So even after, um, after the Bible was being put together, the tradition continued to calling people Nazarenes and Nazarites. And I think Jesus Christ Church of the Nazarenes uh, is going with that tradition, right? I think they're saying that Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. All right, so Sepphoris, what about Sepphoris? Uh, I'm just going to come right through this because I already said most of that. What I wanted to show you, though, at the time of Jesus, Sepphoris was a large Roman-influenced city. It was rich, cosmopolitan, deeply influenced by Greek culture, and surrounded by a panoply of races and religions, the Jews of Sepphoris were a product of the Herodian social revolution, the Nouveau Riche, who rose to prominence after Herod's massacre of the old priestly aristocracy. So it's been suggested that Jesus living in Nazareth may have worked as a craftsman at Sepphoris, and in late antiquity it was believed that it was the birthplace of Mary. Now, I know that uh, that would contradict the Bethlehem thing. I'm not sure what to put up with that, but it, historically it's been connected. So let's look at this Judas the Galilean guy. This is the actual account. There was Judas, the son of Hezekiah, who had been the head of the robbers. This Hezekiah had been a very strong man and had great difficulty being caught by Herod. Judas, having gotten together a multitude of men of a profligate character, you can tell who's writing this, about Sepphoris and Galilee, made an assault upon the palace there and seized the weapons and laid upon it. And with them armed every one of those who were with him and carried away the money that was left there. He became terrible to all men by tearing and rending those who came near him. And all this in order to raise himself out of an ambitious desire for royal dignity, for he hoped to attain as the reward not of his virtuous skill in war, but the extravagance in doing injuries. Well, you know how they talk about history is written by the winners. Now, in the Jewish Encyclopedia version, interestingly enough, I just want to point out one thing. Judas proclaimed the Jewish state as a republic, recognizing God alone as king. So he's very much a Galilean. Whereas that the other point of view from Josephus is, you know, he's this reckless, murdering, crazy person. From this point of view, interestingly, from the Jewish encyclopedia, he was actually claiming that he just wanted to recognize God alone as king. Okay, there was another rebellion by a guy called the Egyptian. 
According to Josephus, he is someone who had magical powers and had garnered an enormous following in the popular folk. He led a mass of people up onto the Mount of Olives, literally looking down on the temple from the way. And Josephus says that, was kind of, that as a kind of false prophet, the Egyptian promised them he would lead these common people into Jerusalem and take them to the temple. It's interesting that these two people came before Jesus. And in the sense that in many things that he did, any things that they did, he also did. Where did he spend his time when he went to Jerusalem? Mount of Olives. So he's sort of declaring himself the Messiah, but he's not stating it. But in his actions, in so many ways, that's what he's saying. Okay, this is what the Romans did, and you can see this in Acts 21. People know about this because Paul is about to be, it's, it's actually the end of Paul's um, ministry when he's about to be sent to Rome, and he's accused of being whom? The Egyptian. So if nothing else, you don't get anything else from this, you're going to read the Bible a little differently, and then you'll, you'll start seeing these figures that the people mention, like, wow, that person has a whole history, and we can verify it. We know what they did. All right, so, so far, Nazareth at the time of Jesus couldn't sustain a carpentry business, or it wasn't likely. He probably would have worked at Sepphoris, which had a synagogue. Here's the floor to the synagogue in Sepphoris that Jesus would have seen. Now, I don't know about you, but that gets my historian thing happy, like, and, and everything else. Like, wow, you can go there, and you can look at that floor, and Jesus would have walked on that floor if he went to Sepphoris. Is it likely that he did? He traveled all over the place. He didn't in his ministry. Why? Because it was? Come on, have we been paying attention? <laughs> it, was one, it was Herod's uh, controlling city. It was basically the financial hub of the area. And then, uh, so he didn't go to Tiberias, he didn't go there. He, he wouldn't go there because Herod would just snap him right up. And he had a certain amount of time that he wanted to do his work. Okay, so this could explain uh, Jesus's, you know, one of the hard things for historians to explain is why is Jesus so savvy? Why does he seem to know about the history and, and all about Judaism and everything else? Well, either you can go with the advantage theory, like he was just born with his knowledge, or you could look at it as he was fully human, and so he lived in a space, and he saw things, and he saw the injustice in the world around him, and he saw the poor and the way they were treated, and he saw the nouveau riche, and he saw the way that that some of the aristocracy had just sold out their people. And Galileans were all angry about that. Like, which is worse, you know? Romans, like I said, are Roman. But to, to do something to sell out your own people, your own culture, he sees that. And I think he has to respond. Jesus would have known about Judas the Galilean and the Egyptians' ill-fated attempts. Yeah. Exposed in that way. yeah, actually there's a slide coming up where um, about 2,000 were crucified with Judas's rebellion. Yeah. Same place I get it. Study. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, what, 
But I've looked at things that he says, and then I've compared them to other things that other people are saying. Uh, PBS did a really great special, basically saying something very similar, but not going some of the places he goes, called uh, from Jesus, darn it, from... Killing Jesus? No. <laughs> that hits some of it, too, but it's Jesus from... Some, something to the Christ from... You know what I'm talking about? It's interesting. It's in, I'm sorry. It just My mind just went blank. Okay. Jesus would also have been a direct witness to the social injustices under Herod Antipas. Unfortunately, he'd only mention, he only mentions Herod Antipas once before he meets up with him. But that's interesting what he says. Antipas killed John the Baptist, eliminated Jewish patriots who were called by the Romans Lestai, built the city of Tiberias on Jewish cemetery. Oops. He claims he didn't know that, but no, most uh, observant Jews would not have even gone to the city. And he married a woman. I, I always knew that it had been his sister-in-law, but it was also his niece. That's why they were so incensed. It's like, okay, this is not just the man's sister-in-law. This is his niece. So in Luke, at that time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus. Interesting, the Pharisees seemed to be looking out for Jesus a little bit here. And said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Okay. He replied, go tell that fox. Now it's interesting, fox is not only a clever animal, but it's also on the list of unclean animals. Yeah, you're not supposed to eat foxes. So it's kind of a double thing there. He's clever and unclean. Got a lot of work done in one little phrase, isn't it? <laughs> I will keep out driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Interesting, he calls himself what? Prophet, smart words, right? It's, he could have said other things there, but he said that. So Jesus was ultimately crucified for being an insurrectionist. I mean, he did what insurrectionists do. He gathered 12 men. He actually gathered a huge crowd of people. Luke says over 70 men and women were followers. He was supported, financed. He went to the same places. He said some of the same things. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. And he was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus Nazareus, Bezaleus, Tom, Iwudam. All four Gospels state that was the title used when Jesus was crucified. And it's interesting that Barabbas was in custody for his part as an insurrection. It seems likely that the two last days crucified with Jesus, that's the word it uses, were also political not necessarily ordinary thieves. Okay, so in the earliest account, Mark, again, I'm sorry, this is good rhetoric. Herod asks him, are you king of the Jews? What's he say? <laughs> That's not an answer. <laughs> it's not an answer, but it's brilliant. You say so. What does that mean? We don't know. Even how, you know, like if I were, 
doing this in a play, if I was playing that role, how would you deliver that line? You say so. Or, you say so. Right? You say so. <laughs> it's brilliant. Of course, you, you already know, Messiah means anointed one. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. And the Messiah was expected, of course, the unification of the tribes of Israel, which is symbolic. You, you gather 12 men. That's the tribes of Israel. So historical context reveals why Jesus is reluctant to declare himself Messiah. Most aspirants to the title declared themselves rightful king. <coughs> to call yourself king was to claim Herod's title and give, given him by Rome, king of Judea, which was treason and insurrection. Three men in Jesus' lifetime already tried that. From the earliest account in Mark, Jesus avoided clear answers to the question of kingship and messiahship. He refused to be labeled king or messiah and chose to define himself as the son of man, which means simply human in its most basic definition. Okay, so let's look at some of the ways he responded. While Jesus was teaching in the temple and the courts, why do the teachers of the law say that the messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How can this be his son? A large crowd listened to him with delight. Okay, so he's trying to just wedge their idea. What, who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah? Is it what you think it is? He also points out in Mark, anybody can call themselves Messiah. He's already seen three people try it in his lifetime. At that time, if anyone says, look, Here's the Messiah. Look, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders. Again, he's not arguing that people can perform signs and wonders. We'll get to next week why Jesus doing it was so different than when others did it. And then, of course, the famous thing, Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say I am? Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You don't have to read it. You should know. You are the Messiah. What did Jesus say? This was always a... Sh I remember the, f the earliest times that I encountered this verse in, in my thoughts, in my head, were... But you are the Messiah. Why did you go, don't tell anybody? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. And then he talks about the Son of Man has to die. And of course, in some of the versions, the disciples get depressed. Like, what are you talking about? We're not going to die. We know how this works. We go to the Mount of Olives. We claim victory, and uh, God's going to give us victory, and we're going to win. We're going to beat the Romans. This is the way it's supposed to work. So he's, he's taking what they want to be the Messiah, throwing it out, and saying, no, it's the Son of Man. That's who I am. The high priest stood up before him and asked Jesus, are you, going to, are you not going to answer? And Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. That's sometimes that's the best rhetoric, isn't it? Just not say anything. Again, the high priest, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am. But he didn't stop there. What's he say right after that? And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What? He's completely redefining what it is. 
Son of Man occurs 81 times in the Greek text of the four canonical Gospels. He's only in the sayings of Jesus. We'll get into that next week. So, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, remember we're looking at all four Gospels, earliest accounts, historical things. Let's go. Jesus was called Jesus of? (laughs) I think I made that point. Jesus resisted the title King and Messiah. From the first gospel on, he preferred the title The Son of Man. Jesus' ministry shared similarities with the rebellions of Judas the Galilean. Location, Galilee. Emphasis on the kingdom of God. Attitude towards taxation. Other connections. All through, you can see that he is on the same playbook as a lot of these uh, other claimants to Messiah. So in that sense, he's not unique. Next week, we'll look a little bit more about why he's unique. The Egyptian also did miracles, the entry into Jerusalem, you know, the the kingly entry into Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. In some ways, it seems like he's almost saying, okay, these other guys tried, but they were the false part. It was the right idea, but they were not the people to do it. Jesus ended his ministry with a clear acts of rebellion. The entry into Jerusalem when he cleansed the temple, that got their ire up simply because that was disrespectful to the authorities of the temple. We'll look at that more next time. Cleansing of the temple and threatening to destroy the temple. Jesus was killed for insurrection. He was also a Galilean. He spoke rustic Galilean Aramaic. His proximity to Sephiroth helps explain knowledge of politics, Greek and Roman Jewish culture. He focused most of his ministry in Galilee. He believed in the sole rule of God. He questioned the centrality of the temple, and he questioned the rule of priests and scribes. And lastly, let's look at Jesus' rhetoric. Jesus spoke to the issues of his time and the situation of his fellow Galileans, focusing on relevant issues, poverty, taxation, economic rule by the elite, the urban shift. Wow, it makes some of the, it makes, okay, let me try I know I'm, I'm running out of time here, but um, that just makes things so much more clear for me to think how much his times were like our times. Yeah, he's, he's out here in Galilee in the back hills, and he's saying, blessed are the poor. And what are most people facing there in ways that they hadn't faced for generations? Poverty and, and working for the rich and needing to move to cities and losing their family farms. I mean, it sounds so familiar. And it makes the Sermon on the Mount that much more daring, doesn't it? Blessed are you poor. What? (laughs) I'm not feeling very blessed. I'm poor. (laughs) I'm being oppressed, not only by Romans, but by fellow Jews. So it's very radical to step out and say that. He used rhetoric to respond enigmatically to those in power because he had a certain amount of time he needed to live. He couldn't get killed too early. So he negotiates that by giving confusing answers to people. Makes sense. He even talks to the disciples about that, which is on all four Gospels, this idea of it's a secret. I'm going to tell you guys what's going on, but I'm not going to tell everybody else. I used to think that was kind of mean. He, even though he gave the parable about some people get it and some people don't, right, the, the different kinds of land. I still thought that was kind of mean, like, well, only these few insiders get the information, but 
No, he's being very careful. He's being rhetorical. He's being cautious because he knows Herod will kill him before he gets to Jerusalem, before anybody even knows who he is. He had to get enough people to know who he was before he left. Exactly. He had to have a ministry. He had to have, and this is why we call it a ministry, not a rebellion. He had, he used a lot of the same, I I began that sentence wrongly. A lot of things he did looked rebellious, but he, but the other things that he did that we'll talk about the next week brought all that into question. Like you're looking like you're Judas the Galilean, but you're doing some different things. You're approaching this differently. So, are you king of the Jews, asked Pilate? What did he say? All right, thanks. Like I said, in the next weeks we'll talk about that just sounded like he was a rebel. <laughs> and he was. But he wasn't the kind of rebel that Judas the Galilean was. He wasn't the kind Judas was or any of the others. And that's what confused, I think it confused the disciples a lot. Some people think, of course, theorized that that's why Judas was so angry with him. And ultimately betrayed him. He, he thought, no, you know how this works. We go into Jerusalem and we start, you know, knocking people off. And this just wasn't happening. Okay, I don't want to end on that. <laughs> I don't know how to end, though. So, questions? I think that it's significant that you put the wheel up there because that infested the synagogues. Yeah, because that's everything that... Life that you can't get out of. Yeah, so it makes a whole lot of sense that when he gets to the temple, he's going to be incensed by anything he feels is a violation of the temple. Because logically, when he cleanses the temple, it doesn't make any sense. He cleanses the court of the Gentiles. And it's always been recognized that the court of the Gentiles is a free-for-all, that the Gentiles can come there. Uh, Anybody can come there. The unclean, that's their access to the temple. So when he, he does that, it really is, it's radical, but I think it's along those same lines. We just don't need to mix this with that. And if he, if he saw that in the, in the synagogue at Sepphoris, I'm sure he would have thought, what's this doing here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am seriously lacking in mathematics. You talked about something in 6 AD. Uh-huh. You said Jesus was 10 years old. Because they don't agree. To my way of thinking, it was 6. No, he was, he was born in 4 BCE. Okay. We know that for sure. Herod was dead in 4. So if Herod persecuted him, it had to be 4. And Quirinius, they're going by the things that Luke says. Uh, the person who made the calendar, what was it, Gregory? Uh, he, he goofed up. <laughs> he got about four years wrong, and people decided, oh, we d- we're not going to mess with that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, there's not much agreement as to exactly when he rebelled. But I'm kind of going with the Jewish encyclopedia that was around six. Otherwise, it would have been earlier, Jesus would have been much younger. But he still would have, of course, known about it. It was a big event. 
all of us would know if in some neighboring city somebody took over and tried to you know, take over the whole country. I think we'd, we'd pretty much be familiar with that. Anything else? Okay, thank you all.